We can't stop and we won't stop. Welcome along to the On The Whistle podcast. This week, we have a long-form interview with Peter Odomwingi. We talk to the former Super Eagle about his early life growing up in the Soviet Union with a Nigerian dad and Russian mom. goes again in the middle and Anike tries to light the fires. He has done too. And Anike Peter also talks to us about his experiences playing football in Europe, Africa and Asia. From the Premier League in England to top flight football in Russia and Indonesia. We hear it all. Morrison's corner. Back in by Ridgewell. Morrison's there again with a little back heel. And this time it has crept over the line again. And it's Adam Wingy who gets the final touch. And West Bromwich Albion now have a 2-0 And unlike most footballers who retire... Peter has no plans on coaching. He's got ambitions on becoming a lawyer and also trying to be Nigeria's Tiger Woods as he takes up golf. Peter Osaze Odemwingi, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Have I got the pronunciation of your name right? Actually, yeah. You surprised me. Not everybody gets it, as you would know. Not the easiest surname. They've twisted it so many times. It's Odom Wingle, uh, there's there's so many versions of that name. But anyway, you did your best, yeah. Peter, we obviously worked together at the uh, 2018 uh, Russia World Cup. And it was a fascinating experience working with you. One, because I found your, your backstory really interesting. Um, Russian mom, Nigerian dad, you've lived and were brought up pretty much in two continents, uh, that being Europe and Africa, Nigeria, and Russia. Could you tell us what that experience was like? Uh, well, uh, of course, I will have to say that um, the object, uh, that football, which became a profession, uh, was always at the core of uh, uh, you know everything I did. So those countries are very football-loving, I will say. So it was easy to adapt because I think if uh, they are so different in terms of weather, uh, cultures, that I think adapting without something that keeps you focused will be really probably difficult, you know. But, um, yeah, it was a very lively uh, time for me growing up because I was in a team sport. So, uh, of course, great memories. Um, and I will say the influence I had from those countries uh, is what actually made me motivated to become a football player. Um, uh, and, yeah, every time I return both to Nigeria, I'm so happy. Just, uh, you know, the food as well. Uzbekistan, Tashkent has uh, one of the best pilaf rice to boast with and is very known in the world. Um, I forgot the name of the uh, is uh, Brazilian World Cup winning coach because a few of them coached there. I think last uh, month I heard his uh, Scolari. Dish. Yeah, Scolari, I think. His favorite dish was uh, Uzbek pilaf. So that's the city, Tashkent, where I was born. So um, my dad studied medicine there. Uh, Could you tell us about your parents' love story? How did they meet and, and how did that burgeon? A Nigerian dad studying in Tashkent, Uzbekistan, in the old Soviet Union, correct? Yes, yes. It's, um, you know, even today when people say, where are you from? I'm like a Russian mom, uh, Nigerian dad. Where were you born? In Uzbekistan. Yeah, <laughs> very interesting. So to not to go uh, too long about it, uh, the love story is my dad came uh to study medicine so he qualified he did some exams really well so they were looking at his grades and then they give given out scholarships you know and then the soviet union then opened uh gave opportunities to african students you know uh, soviet union obviously communist country uh the motives uh, i don't know if that was the beginning of globalization or in their opinion you know when they bring over students it's a, it's a tools to spread communism around the world, mm -hmm. you know, uh, their ideology. So anyway, uh, it's a good thing, I will say. So uh, that gets scholarship, arrives, finds Moscow, too cold. They goes to Kishinev in Moldova to learn Russian for one year. So he get, does that and then he goes, I can't take this cold. I need to go to a part of this country because it's so big where it's warm. 
Turkey asks, and they say, okay, there is an option in Tashkent, in Uzbekistan. So he said, yeah, lovely. He looks at the weather, perfect. So the winter is not so harsh there. So he arrives there, and that's the city where my mom was born, uh, just not far, an hour away, uh, an hour drive from Tashkent. So she's in university studying gynecology. My dad was uh, an anesthesiologist. Uh, now by profession, but that's what he studied. They met there, and obviously during that time, uh, it was something new for the nation, you know, for the whole country, uh, students from Africa coming over. So, and uh, it was a funny story. Well, my mom told me once, uh, when they got married, uh, they got married in 1978, uh, then my sister was born in 79, I was born in seven, uh, 81. So, um, they had to fight for the relationship somehow. They never said it was really tough, but the, my mom was questioned a little bit, like, you know, it's a foreign student, like, you guys shouldn't uh, maybe get together. But my dad was a tall, handsome, good-looking, uh, amazing smile guy, you know, very charismatic. So she fell in love, and he also, um, my mom was a very active person. Uh, she played handball very well, but stopped at, at uni time. So anyway, they fall in love, they get married, uh, kind of with a bit of a firm, let's say, uh, they had to be firm about it, that they're not uh, taking into account whatever whoever's opinion. They love each other, they feel like uh, two human beings have the right to decide for themselves. They get married, then my sister is born. Then one trip, because my mom is an hour away from Tashkent, where her parents live, so my sister is born, and then there is this curiosity uh, and then my dad used to come, f uh, because the borders were closed, really, from two countries, uh, my dad used to go to London. He would bring, uh, like, s uh, stuff that they don't really sell, uh, not available for people to buy there, like uh, different type of nappies, clothes, jeans, you know, because communism then, it was so closed that they don't import things from abroad. So they were both dressed like they are, uh, the Beatles, like, uh, you know, like... Very fashionable very people. fashionable people. And then the dad used to bring this kind of, different kind of cots, you know, like where you tra travel with kids. So it's different to all, what everybody sees in the, in the shops there. Uh, although uh, during communism it was like uh, still good good quality of life from what I remember. So then, and then there was a baby in there. So they see this couple, my mom used to laugh. And then she's like, so we're going nearly towards the end of the journey. One lady, but it's so like, and then she goes, but it's in Russian words. The, it means like, покажите наконец этого ребенка. But she was like, can we see it at least, your baby? You know, because everybody was seeing the fact that in this whole bus, there was an African man standing with his uh, wife, and they have a baby, their family, good looking, very fashionable, and but people couldn't see inside. So then, mom, uh, she and one woman, she said she couldn't wait, like hold it anymore. She was so honest about it. Can I see her, please, your baby? <laughs> then they bring my sister out, and she was cute, little mixed race kid. And then, uh, you know, then of course, it's something that even when I was growing up, I had to deal with, you know. When we moved up to uh, near Kazan in the city of Nabirzhny Chelny, where Kamas football club is, so going to school, sometimes people will peep into the class to see, because they've never seen an African person or someone with African roots. So it's a real fascination. Yes, of course, of course. But then, you know, uh, then the, what was attached to me always was this guy is an amazing footballer, you know, that he alone can beat uh, 11 players uh, and score a goal. So then the uh, people started picking interest in how I did as a footballer. But anyway, in general, I had an amazing childhood, few teams, uh, classmates that we're still in touch with. Tashkent is still probably one of my favorite cities. I was there twice in the last uh, one year with classmates, gone back, went to look at the places we lived. There were some people who remembered us, and we're talking about 25 years ago. When I left wow. there, there were some uh, uh, <clears throat> old women, like you wouldn't think they would remember us, me and my classmates. Just like, I remember you guys. You even literally walking here nearly naked. Uh, like, I remember everything about you guys. So I'm like, really? And then she would describe things to us like, wow. And this is the first time we saw her. But then we left, we were... 13 or 12, and we were now coming at 38 years old. She looks at me and Roma, my classmate, that we went there from uh, Moscow to just to have a visit to where we lived. So they were still even uh, 
uh, what do you call it, uh, footprints from mm. the footballs that we used to kick up to the fourth floor. They haven't painted for so many years some of those houses that when the balls were wet, they used to be dirty and they'll hit the they'll hit the spot there and some ball uh, marks were still there and we were looking at each other like that's us competing not to hit the ball onto the roof but who hits it higher to have a mark you know we had our games going on so it was a great trip you know back to Tashkent to the city where I was born Rivaldo finished his career there the stadium actually where he played where Scolari coached his uh, um, what's the name of the club now I'm so after the drive. This is in Uzbekistan, Tashkent. Tashkent. Is, is it, I was going to say Bunny Koda. Is that Bunyot the name Kor. of the team? There we go. Bunyot Kor. So <laughs> Did you hear my pronunciation? Yeah, I could figure it out. You just had to give me a B, you know. So <laughs> you have good knowledge. Good knowledge in uh, football, you know. I try. So the biggest club there is Pachtakor, uh, where Shotar Viladze, former Georgian international uh, Ajax player and uh, Rangers player is the coach there now. Mm-hmm. You know, Samuel Eto once thought of going there to play and he had just a visit there. Rivaldo and, uh, finished his career in that stadium and that was my youth team before I moved to Pachtakor and then uh, uh, over to Nigeria. So, yeah, a lot of stories as you can tell. Uh, we've already talked only 10 minutes on the intro, which should be probably a minute or two. <laughs> No, this is long form, so we can take the conversation wherever you'd like, Peter. But you're a person who has, I think, lived in seven different countries across three different continents. Your dual Russian and Nigerian heritage. I think you're probably the coolest person I know in terms of heritage and mm. stories and travels. H- how do you identify? What do you identify as? I'm just, uh, you know, citizen of the world, I will say, because I've lived, as you said, in so many countries. And we're sitting today in London, and I'm, I'm, I feel very British now at the same time. You know, it's a, it's a great country in, uh, that has impacted a lot in the, in the world. Uh, I play golf. My kids are into cricket. Like, if you'd ask me 20 years ago, will I be in England uh, playing golf? sitting, having a pint with uh, British guys, old guys who play golf, having a chat happily, uh, eating Yorkshire puddings. Um, my kids waking up in the morning, I want to watch cricket. Uh, I want to watch the, the highlights of the ashes. And, you know, that ball, he's, that, they know the rules. They run around, but I'm like, whoa, you know, sometimes. So, but uh, at the same time, I, my country is Nigeria and Russia, of course. I uh, love them with all my heart and you know uh, Belgium is another country where I started my league they I always followed their players I, I had a great time there made good friends my first coach actually Ariel Jacobs uh, he could speak about seven languages he was a great guy um, you know uh, he launched me I will say because he was the first guy to give me a contract in Europe uh, and I had an argument with him after the first training session because he said your CV says you're a right footer but you are a left footer I'm like, no, I'm a right footer. He, he said, no, you're a left footer. Like, we're arguing about it. So I just left it at where it was because on the training session, we had shooting exercises and I was just smashing balls in with both feet because I kind of, most of my career, I shot, scored more goals with my left foot mm. being, being a right footer and I could hit it hard with my left foot. So, yeah, on the, after that, we had the argument. And then, of course, uh, he had to work on me a lot, you know, uh, because I was coming from Nigeria where I spent about three, four years from 17 till 21. So the mentality is different. It's more about entertaining football. It's about a bit of uh, play. It wasn't taken as a job. You know, that's what we, you know, uh, stand out for African players. Tell me about that. Was it more when you were playing in Nigeria about African flair and expression than perhaps a rigid game plan? Yes, yes. Uh, of course, there is still a game plan, but as we all know, uh, African football has improved in terms of discipline uh, on the pitch, on pitch discipline. So, but uh, yeah, the tactical awareness is very different from when you're coming down. So you need a couple of years to adjust, having all the talent, the physique, the pace and everything. You need to learn a lot. So he was the first guy to make me switch. I can remember always, st- he's always thinking, switch! So as soon as the action is finished or whatever, I'll start planning the next move, how I'll take people on instead of going back into position to be part of the defending uh, of the team. You know, even if you're a forward player or a winger, you have to like... So that he had to teach me a lot. 
so it was amazing. First year we won the Belgian FA Cup, played in uh, in UEFA Cup, first time in the history for that club. So we made history there. I scored the first goal against Benfica. Uh, I once scored a very fast goal. It took six to seven seconds, and I thought that would be the record standing till today. But uh, they, there was something about a second, so someone else has the record. It was a nice goal. So great memories from Belgium. Love the country. Uh, have good, really good friends there. And sometimes part of me feels like that was the mo- the best moments of my career because I was so raw, like innocent, rusty, came into this professional scene on the first training uh, reserve team game just to keep me like ad- adapting to the weather, to the type of uh, balls. The pitches were a bit faster than in Africa. I broke my jaw. So I had to have a surgery and they had to like stitch my mouth together and I could only drip soup for like a month and a half. So that's how I was welcomed to kind of professional football in Europe. So anyway, I recover. And then, you know, go through the program. And the first year we won the cup. It was really amazing memories. So first year I'm lifting a trophy like in the FA Cup. So it was good. That's why the memories I have, my friends from uh, Belgium always text me, well, you're true fans. And I remember they actually used to come to little games like La Louvière Lears. La Louvière, like uh, Antwerp, small games, you know, not big games. And they, I had a group of uh, Belgian people that will come and watch me, and we were friends, you know. So, and then I will invite them for a few games, bigger games than in the future. Uh, but then the first steps are always very precious to anyone because you don't expect things. It's when you're on a level where you already play, play in Premier League, you've been in one World Cup, you don't appreciate things as much as you used to before. So that still have that uh, feeling like I was a kid when I was in Belgium. So that's why I still have attachment to that country. Peter, you've had the privilege of playing for so many clubs in, in, in over three continents. I'm not going to chart your career chronologically, but one of my favorite quotes is one from Maya Angelou. And she says, people will forget what you did. Mm-hmm. People will forget what you said. Mm-hmm. But people will never, ever forget how you made them feel. Right. And with this interview, what I want to ask you is a few questions about the various places you've played and how you felt. And first and foremost, which is the club where you felt you enjoyed your football the most? Uh, I would say it was uh, Lille. Lille. Uh, it was like a complete puzzle. You know, it was, uh, uh, I was uh, fine uh, discovering myself as a man that period. I was wrapped up with love by the fans because, and I was on fire. I was scoring a lot of goals, you know, and I remember that moment where I picked up interest in Christianity. So I was praying more. I was, uh, you know, I was... uh, uh, developing like as a player on the pitch, then I will read. And my mom used to always give me books about philosophy a lot, you know, from an early age. So I was just picking interest in like uh, deeper things outside of football. And football was going so well. I was a top scorer. I was so good. And then I had a manager who was very demanding, and uh, Claude Puel, uh, nicknamed uh, the dog for a for a thing uh, on his playing days. He was very. Uh, switched on all the time and he demanded so much from us during the week so he got the best out of me trained me a lot we had to work hard stay behind after training sessions to work on my finishing because he's the coach who transformed me from a winger to a striker and in the three years I never played any other position than a striker for him and I think that was key because that was my best position and in in the national team in and the later stages in England they were tweaking me, wing, sometimes striker, wing, sometimes striker. But with him, you were just a striker. So now it's very important to know your role and they, somebody recognizes your best, your strengths, and they just uh, make you feel comfortable. So that was good, and the numbers were always high. Whenever I played as a striker, I got the, the number of goals high. And then the song from the fans for me was Il court, il marque, il rit, which means he runs, he scores, he smiles. So they saw I was happy, you know, the smile was noticed. So he runs, he scores, he smiles. And whenever they sang that, it made me always happy. I've never stepped into the new stadium of Mm -hmm. Lille. It's an amazing stadium. And uh, it was built 
um, from my understanding, uh, part of the money we used to qualify to the Champions League two years in a row. There was a lot, some funds coming into the club, so they got the land, the approval, so they started the foundations of that stadium, you know, and then the sponsors obviously took over. But we had a part to play at that time for the investment of the club to go through, and now the club is enjoying great facilities in that stadium. So, uh, Lille, I will say, uh, of course, it's not easy to just call out one team because you've played in like uh, seven. I enjoyed my football in many. Uh, Stoke was such a special club for me because I'd done my ACL injury after six months, but the way we bonded with the fans and how I celebrated goals in my first six months, they kept singing this, my song, uh, He Scores Goals, that song. Uh, he scores goals, he scores goals. <laughs> so they used to sing that song in even home and away games in the season when I was recovering through from a cruciate, like, massive uh, injury I had. So uh, And that encouraged me throughout the rehab so much. So, But it was a shorter period, you know, and maybe that also... I will just give it to Lille because it was Champions League football. Uh, it was uh, we were doing uh, as an Englishman will say, punching above our weight, yeah, uh, our height or whatever. So yeah, Lille stands out. Um, there was some uh, West Brom was an amazing time, first two seasons, uh, but then few issues came on on the third season that ruined it a little bit. But I still love the club. My photo. A big photo of me is still there because I'm part of the history and I enjoyed it uh, genuinely. Uh, Locomotive had ups and downs as well. When I left there on a negative note, you know, with the banner that they put up when I moved here. Uh, but the beginning was also very good. So maybe my honesty there was a bit uh, kind of brutal honesty because when I arrived from France, people were like, you're, uh, you know, that's a, a bit downward move. But I'm saying to the journalist, why is it downward move? This is my motherland, my country. I love it. You know, it's uh, Moscow. I grew up here in CSK Academy. I want that feeling of playing for one of the big clubs of Moscow because the derbies were amazing. So it's a kind of a backward movement. I'm like, no, my ambitions are still there. I still want to go to Premier League. And when the opportunity comes, I will go. So that's kind of, uh, fans don't want to really hear that, do they? When you're playing for a club, all the fan wants to hear is, I'm here forever, I want to play only here and uh, finish my career with this club. But uh, I would I rather say exactly what my plans were. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. uh, it might sound, come out as <clears throat> rude, but I made myself clear when I arrived. So it was like some fans were saying, yeah, but he's not committed here. He doesn't want to stay here and love us for, for the rest of his career, whatever. So that was a bit of a thing that maybe stirred up when I moved to, to West Brom. They would be like, okay, yeah, he always said he wants to leave. He wanted to leave to, to Premier League. And then the situation with the banner came out. But otherwise, my own personal time there was good. Although there were issues, the racial issues here and there, like, you know, with Roberto Carlos, then after with the banana. But then it was so highlighted because the World Cup bid, FIFA had to decide who hosts the World Cup. And, uh, you know, the media kept highlighting that, my case in particular. Uh, so it, it then kind of had a sour end to my departure departure from Russia, but that didn't diminish my love for the country. Football is different. Like as a person, that's my country. Football, stadiums, fans, we see the madness going on. Not only in Russia since then, it's everywhere. Peter, you've said that at Lokomotiv you had some issues just after you transferred. You've mentioned about the issues at West Brom. Where did you have the most challenging time in your career and how did you recover from that? The most challenging time probably was uh, my failed move to Queen's Park Rangers after West Brom. And why it was, it because, you know, you when you really love where you are, um, West Brom, I was enjoying my football there. I uh, broke most club records. And till today, I still host hold the uh, most scored goals in Premier League. Peter, your debut season at West Brom was amazing. 15 goals, if I'm correct, a club record. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, no, Lukaku beat it uh, on the year he came with 16. 
uh, yeah, it was a it was a great season. I scored. I think the another record was four or five games in a row scored. First West Brom player to win play, Premier League Player of the Month award. First African to have two of those awards in one year. So things gone really well for me. And it was it's um, then you know the, I was the first to then because the interest came from many places and there were I got. Um, improved contracts so that kind of stirred some problems within the dressing room which now people see as normal that if one player you know the club goes out of its way to give a player a big contract the next leader steps in to say uh, you know recognize my job as well so that caused a little bit of friction in within the dressing room which was unfortunate because it takes time you know everybody has a story it's time when you're ripe you you move to the next level so that those things a little bit and then I think it was a bit early in my opinion when our present coach they started ro- doing rotation and I was one of the players he used to rotate that would have been Steve Clark correct yeah, yeah Steve Clark did this rotation thing but um, my numbers spoke for themselves I was top scorer then uh, I was performing so well that sometimes he would put me on the bench and the fans will be singing get him on get him on like kind of talking to him we need him now so there were a bit of a strange things going on so because I was then heading into my final year and uh, in football fans won't know everything but clubs do play games because you know it's a business they try to uh, make it in a way that uh, they don't show desperation in resigning you or keeping you they will play it cool like in any relationship you know sometimes when you need something you act cool like you don't really need it but you actually need it so bad so there were things going on that uh, I didn't really uh, like but most of it is that I wasn't getting enough game time and my motivation was still as high as it was I was only 30 or 31 there was World Cup in Brazil coming that was in still in two three years you know I had all my ambitions were still ahead of me and I think uh, my peak because I have, I will say, good genes. Uh, some say I could still be playing now, and I think I could be. Uh, but then, the obviously, the injury in Stoke slowed me down. But, uh, yeah, I wasn't having enough game time, and I wanted to change, you know. I wanted to just be, my main thing in life was to be in a, in a club where I'm needed. I'd rather be in a club where they, they expect things from me every week uh, rather than be in a good place, good club, but uh, without expecta- much expectations on you. Had you spoken to Harry Redknapp before you were looking to make the move to QPR? Because <clears throat> I've seen press conferences um, where he talks about you being a lovely guy, a wonderful player, and someone that he thought could have added value to the QPR squad at the time. Mm, yes, yes. Uh, he showed his interest through <clears throat> their, their club made a bid to West Brom and, you know, they were... They did what they had to do, so the talks with West Brom were a bit more difficult than they were supposed to be, in my opinion. Uh, I can't give a lot of details now here, but one day, of course, if I give my when I do an autobiography, uh, the, I will make uh, the situation more clear. So, but yeah, moving on from that wasn't uh, easy. wasn't wasn't an easy thing, you know. From being a hero, you were put to zero for a period of time. But I think at the end of the day, as years went back, I was there in the stadium yesterday, I mean, last uh, couple of months ago to receive a hat. Uh, I'm back to, I'm a member of the former Players Association and I, on the pitch I had to do like half walk in the stadium and the reception was so warm and I nearly broke in tears because I used to, I walked right behind the goal where I used to score and jump into the fans and hug them and we used to celebrate like goals, especially against Birmingham City when I scored. I ran into the crowd, there was so much joy. So I just relieved those moments where I used to score in that particular goal and then the reception was so good. People were coming out to hug and stretch a high five even like on the third row. So things like that really made me so emotional and when they were interviewing me, like there was so much, so much warmth in the stadium. So I feel like they've moved on from that. Uh, but it was a difficult six months for, for me, obviously. It's amazing to hear that that, that relationship has been mended because you had done so well for the club. And it just makes me so happy that you can go back there and play a, a great role as, as a legend, not only of African football, but a legend in that club. Sticking to our Maya Angelou anecdote, where did you have your most original experiences as a footballer? Indonesia. Indonesia is an 
amazing country. It's uh, crazy in many ways, uh, but it's, uh, I think, 250 million population love football. Uh, uh, the stadiums were packed. And there was one game I went to watch after. It's in Surabaya. The uh, Surabaya FC were playing against uh, Percy Bandung, the team where Michael Lessian played. Oh. And there were probably... My wife used to live in Bandung, so I know it. Yeah, you can, <laughs> if you ask her, she will tell you they are football mad. Their training sessions used to have sometimes 5,000, 7,000 people just watching the training session. You know, and the attention they get from the media is a massive club. And I've played against them once, and I could tell... Very passionate support. The, the, the fun movement there is, uh, is, is good. In your question, did we say original, original experience? experiences? So we're they talking about original food, experiences. Coaching, anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> being moved out of the stadium in Bandung in an armored vehicle, that's very original. <laughs> it doesn't get more original than that. What did they put you in? And whether you had claustrophobia or whatever, they won't know. So it was so original, and we were there, and there was not a lot of air. So I was thinking, even me, that I'm not claustrophobic. This is like near the limit. W was it know? like an army vehicle? What Armored vehicle, fully, uh, like, uh, uh, how do you call it, bulletproof, like a proper armor, like a tank. So you were <laughs> driven out of the pitch on a tank. But then... What were they worried what was going to happen to you? No, but that's what they do, because some games, like uh, there is two clubs there, Persija, Jakarta... And Bandung, there's like very um, hot derby. Unfortunately, uh, every year I think still the stats say people die in Indonesia from football because they are so passionate about it. Of course, it's not what you want to hear, but the passion, you see it. And uh, they sing throughout the whole match. The fan movement, they're great. Like Maduro United, my former club, the fans are like a different class. They p do the painting. I like the Super Eagles. You know our guys who did the painting in the World Cup. They're very known for that. So this next place where I saw painting was actually in Madura. So they will paint, they will sing, they, had the, they will go for away games, with, regardless of all the danger. So I think Indonesia was the most uh, uh, experienced in many ways in the negative and in many ways very positive. So, uh, but the good thing is there's a lot of passion for that game. There was one goalkeeper that passed away. Uh, Huda, that's his name. Yeah, he was a great guy. I liked him as a goalkeeper. And last year, my season when I was playing there, he passed away on the pitch. He had a cardiac arrest or something. And then you could see how emotional the whole fans, the whole stadium had um, uh, candles and they were all singing. And the cameras, the camera is going, the whole stadium knows the song, you know. And I'm sitting on the TV, I'm like looking at this. I'm like, everybody knows this. And then they are showing, then on Instagram or something, they are showing other stadiums joining in to sing, like to join them and mourn the loss of their player who was their captain for like 10 years. He's been there like a captain for that club for 10 years. So that's another very, very amazing thing. You know, trips to Bali, like it's a special place. That place is a special place. Um, reminded me a lot of Africa. And at the same time, it was a bit more developed than Africa, like Nigeria, which like it has a beauty of like Japan and Asia and China is so developed and at the same time so rough, some really like uh, poor areas. And then, you know, it was such a contrast there. So it was a very original experience, I'll say. Peter, I know you won a cup in Belgium. You won a silver medal with Nigeria at the Beijing Olympics to go with a couple of bronze medals at African Cup of Nations. You've played at Champions League football at Lille in France and won a number of individual awards in the Premier League for West Brom. At which team would you say you, you achieved your career highlight and what would that have been? Um, well, of course, trophies is what you will say. Highlight is um, I didn't get to win one. It's unfortunate I missed out on winning the African Cup of Nations that, that bloody month of January 2013 in one way was when I didn't get the call-up to the national team and they won it. And then that saga with West Brom. But then my son was born on that month, which makes my first son was an amazing month. It was crazy, you know. It was so many things going on. But I will say um, Premier League football uh, is, is a good test, you know. Winning two awards uh, in this league 
was probably the highest. I was going to say Lille, Champions League, scoring away at AC Milan, getting 2-0 win with Lille, away at AC Milan with players like Kaká and Zaghi uh, on the pitch, Pirlo, you know, winning that that and beating United out, sending them out of the group stage with Lille in Champions League. Probably I could say Lille, uh, but because of this, this season, the league I used to compete in, I'll say the first season in West Brom was a test. I won two Player of the Month awards. To do that in Premier League at that time, you had to do play at least four games in a row on a really good level. And we're talking about real opposition here. We played the big games, Arsenal, Liverpool, uh, uh, Chelsea. So I had to score against big clubs to earn that and score winning goals. So because it's recognized as the biggest uh, league in the world, I'll say probably my Premier League uh, career was probably the highlights of my career. If we transition to international football, you are a dual citizen. You're Russian and you're Nigerian. Did you ever have a sense that you wanted to play for the Russian team or was it always about the Super Eagles? No, because I always have fun when I have... There's a lot of jokes, you know. Russian is my first spoken <coughs> language, so I understand all the jokes. So I'm attached to that country through my soul. Growing up there with all the films that were played in Christmas time, New Year time, all the comedy shows, my family, aunties. So I have a strong attachment to that country apart from football. So it would have been lovely to play to play for them as well. Um, but at the same time, so much love for Nigeria. So excited to after the Olympics they won in 96, watching them when I was in Russia. And I said to my friends, like, I'm going to play for Nigeria. You know, they looked at me like, yeah, yeah, like you're joking. But so you told them that when you were a kid? Yeah, I told them I was uh, 14 or 15, 96. I was 15. And when they won the Atlanta 96 and Kanu scored those goals and Mokachi and... Uh, you know, it was such a babayaro with his the funny dances. So they were such an amazing. They beat Brazil in the semi-final, Argentina in the final. So they made a name, and I was watching it. I had the videotapes of those games. My dad brought me. He even brought me one from on the 17th of Nigeria, and I used to watch them. I could watch them every day, a whole match. Just how in love I was with that uh, team. Um, that's why I enjoyed playing for Nigeria so much. The atmosphere is so uh, lively. We sing to the stadium. It's uh, a human touch. It's so present in our national team that you know you you want to always go to the camp and spend that week there because we sing together, pray together, eat. There is jokes. There is. It's just a great atmosphere in Nigerian camp, uh, in the Super Eagles camp. So, yeah, I enjoyed a lot uh, of that. So having a mom from Russia, dad from Nigeria, uh, two important people in your life. So you must connect with them. And by connecting with them, you connect with uh, where the country where they grew up from, where they come up from. So the countries are just dear to me as uh, any other. But there was never a debate about wanting to play for Nigeria because it's clear from what you say, when you saw them win that Olympic gold, yeah. you wanted to play yes, for the Super Eagles. They had bigger players. They had uh, bigger names. They had players that, uh, like you know, the Canos, the Okocha, Taribo West, Babayaro. You know, these are players who are playing in the big leagues. But Russian players were not traveling as much. They mm -hmm. had like Valery Karpin, Alexander Mostovoy. They had Alinichev, uh, who won Premier League. I mean, the Champions League with Porto. Uh, they had many great players, uh, but few of them, only few really went abroad. So they didn't make a worldwide name. But Nigerian players had a worldwide name, winning Olympic golds and this and that. So my dream was to play for Nigeria. But then when I was playing for Lille, there was a game in the Europa League where the Russian coaches, uh, Russian referees were refereeing. So we had a chat and they're like, you going to ever go home to play and something? So they didn't know like I had Russian roots. When they read, they're like, oh, born in Uzbekistan, CSK, Moscow. So we had a first chat. But then I was capped by Nigeria already and I was a full-time national team player. So it could be a bit of a loss for Russia. They have uh, athletics, they have mixed race kids uh, running uh, uh, track and field for Russia. In basketball, there is one. So they have um, uh, people with African roots representing them, but not in football yet. So uh, I look forward to seeing one. And there is one boy uh, who is playing for FC Krasnodar. He's as Nigerian dad and a Russian mom. He's from St. Petersburg. So he's playing now there. Uh, and uh, I hope he's about 24 years old. Very tall, strong boy. Has looks of the first Ronaldo. I'm watching his career, following it carefully, because I want to see him one day play for Russia and do well. 
Peter, one of the things that everybody knows about your career is you're a smart, intelligent guy, and you were never afraid to speak your mind, particularly on issues where they were at the club level or with the national team. And I remember at the 2014 World Cup, you scored a goal against Bosnia. It was brilliant. But also at that World Cup, the team was negatively impacted because there was a row about bonuses. Mm -hmm. Now, this was also an issue at the AFCON in 2019 with the Super Eagles, and has been something that has been a problem with African teams, not only Nigeria, when we look at uh, major competitions. You were a player who predominantly played your whole career Mm -hmm. overseas in Europe. Did it surprise you that these would be issues at the national team and... Does it still surprise you that these are ongoing issues with the Nigerian team and other African teams? It's very sad. It's a very sad moment, especially when it's, you are representing your nation in a sport. And I think uh, every nation needs to take responsibility uh, as a nation and not let that happen. Not as a federation, as a nation. Deal with internal issues within the country, but when it comes to an international stage, you're going to the Olympics, you're going to the AFCON, you're going to World Cup, that is when you shouldn't, everybody should do everything possible to protect the image of the, uh, of the nation. Of course, the players also have the role to play there. But there is always, you know, FIFA gives every federation uh, an amount of money for qualifying. Obviously, the players who played, they felt they need to be rewarded for it. And there are promises made in advance, which is a motivation, is a stimulus mm-hmm. used for them. So when you, you the stimulus is there, you get the job done, you want to be paid. And when you're not paid, it's sometimes it's a little bit of principle or like, what's this? Why? You know, and because in your head, yeah, the money is there. It's available. FIFA never delay. They've paid. So in Brazil, we had that. It was embarrassing, of course, for the whole nation. But you know, you can't describe this in really with just a small interview. Books can be written about what's really going on, the meetings of players, how we sit in the room to discuss what's the way forward, what should we do. Because another thing is there have been many sets of groups of players that were promised things, and after the tournaments, if the results were not achieved or for one or the other reason, you never get what you were promised or what you were owned. You can be owed for many years, for years, and never get it. So those are also the experiences some players pass on from generation to say, guys, you know, it might, you might never see this this uh, money if you don't fight for it now. So what what we did then was to raise the awareness that the government, because until the call goes from the federation to the government that something has to be done. Now you guys need to go into the, if it's national reserves or whatever, you have to just sort this out before it becomes an embarrassment. But there was one thing I would have never allowed. In Brazil, there was a thing. We did uh, boycott a training session. So then there were, it got a bit heated, but I don't want to be the one saying, bringing this story out. It did get heated between a few senior members because I recognized a limit to which we can go. So there is a limit, you create an embarrassment, which we did, and then they reacted to it. Some officials from the government came, and the money was later done. So then there was another uh, day, training, that we could also miss, because they haven't physically paid, but some people came and assured us the money will be paid. Then there was a flight, we had to go to to play Argentina. You can't miss that flight. And there was saying, there was some guys just saying, we're not going to the airport. That's when I'm like, no, we are going to the airport. You know, uh, this is Nigeria. It's not about this bonus. We have fought for our rights, ourselves, for what we're all. But then there is a moment to recognize that it's not about us here. We are on the national service. We are flying. So, you know, it heated up a bit that you, how far can we push them? In my opinion, I felt we've pushed them enough. And... As leaders, you can't make decisions for everyone. It had to be a vote, for instance, but some guys will be shy there to say, because some people are there say, this is World Cup. I don't really, it's not about money. It's not about, yeah, senior players do their job. They fight for the team. For everybody gets paid. That's also respected from the younger players that are coming up who don't have the big say in the team. But then there is a moment you have to recognize when it's about you 
when it's about the nation and then you know with so there needs to be a right balance so there was a moment where uh you know it was so it was a scary moment where you thought man we, this is heading somewhere really bad nigerian fans are the innocent fans who love football waiting to see their national team and we might not fly and then or we'll be flying on the day of the match into the city to play argentina you are already upset you're going out to lose so it was a big decision to you know to make but then uh, thankfully we flew a day before and had a training session in the city where we were going to play Argentina and things were sorted and then we played it's been happening again and again with african teams and it's uh, we're only embarrassing ourselves to be honest as a continent uh, we only be laughed at if things like this are still going on players need to like boycott um but uh, yeah, last World Cup, I think, in Russia, uh, yeah. nothing was, uh, that issue wasn't uh, uh, raised. In no, the but, uh, but for the AFCON, we, it was. was. good. For the AFCON, uh, for the Nigerian team, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it, it shows probably how our federation prioritized the AFCON uh, over World Cup or not, what the reasons were, because we have internal problems within the, with the Federation and the government. There was elections going on that uh, two parties claim they are supposed to run the Federation or not. Those, those things affected uh, the situation. And that's why the government pulled themselves out. But the government is the main sponsor of the, of the Federation. So then there is a disbalance there where FIFA gives the directives that the government is not allowed to interfere in things of FIFA and Federation. But how can they not interfere if they are the main sponsors of the national team? So they needed, they wanted to have control. So it was natural that there were some frictions and they wanted a bit of transparency in the whole thing. But regardless of the situation, I think I was saying, so one comment of, from me was that they even said they might ban Nigeria. You know, there was a thing. Those people fighting, the two parties fighting, cannot let that threat even come. One has to step down and take your time to pursue your case through courts and through whatever, but never expose the national team to get to a level where there is a threat of a ban. We don't even want to hear that. So one needs to just step down for the sake of the country's football because that game, we say it like lightly here, that game, we use it as jokes everywhere that it unites Nigeria because the north is Muslims, the south is Christians, the middle belt sometimes has these frictions. And on the day Nigeria is playing, everybody is full of love, sharing food with each other. And there is just a celebration of one nation. So we need to always have that in mind when decisions are to be made and uh, not to let things get to a level where there is a threat of a ban because if to take Nigeria away from football, miss a World Cup or an African Nations Cup, you know, I think there will be a bit more aggression in the in the country than, than should be. Peter so articulately answered. And from my perspective, one of my best memories of Nigeria was the 1994 World Cup and seeing that Nigerian team be on the cusp of beating Italy and making it through. I remember watching that with my parents on a sofa. Yeah. And that day... Every African was Nigeria, so we know the value they bring. Yeah. Of course, when they play South Africa and Bafana Bafana, they must lose. But outside of that, as Africans, you know yeah. we support one another. Peter, I know we're running out of time right now, but I'm going to ask you about the now and the present. Mm-hmm. You're currently doing your best to be a professional golfer. Yeah. Tell me what that's about and how you balance it up with studying to be a lawyer. Uh, yes, so... Um, <clears throat> I was excited about uh, getting education uh, uh, as a project, my priority. So I, uh, 1st of September, I enrolled uh, after passing initial assessment. I enrolled to a course called Access to Higher Education, and I chose to do law because of all the problems, similar problems in the, with the FA, problems, uh, you know, in organizations. So my motivation was to get a law degree and then specialize after in sports law to put my input into all these situations where disputes come and all the, to tr- have an effect, you know, having an experience played in Europe, lived here, be able to take that with me and also understand the perspective of a football player, where we're coming from, why we do this, why, that, you know, to kind of, I was, could be a good middleman, you know, if I had some education. So that's still a project, but unfortunately last week I had to withdraw because I felt I took too much on my shoulders. 
I withdrew from the law for now. I will call it I postponed it for a couple of years ahead. And I focused on the professional golf studies because this is a full-on degree. I didn't think there would be so much studies in it. Why golf? Because uh, I just love the game. I'm a big Tiger Woods fan, let's say. I fell in love with the game that I never thought I would like. And when I tried it, it was uh, such a challenge because the game is harder than you think. And it takes a lot of mental uh, strength, focus, and to become good at this game and to actually perform uh, four days in a row. Ba basically, it demands you to be a robot. And that's a big challenge. And I like a challenge. And uh, uh, it's also something I want to do to develop in Nigeria, uh, in particular, and Russia, because the game is not developed. And I want to create a platform for players to be able to get scholarship in America or, or England through golf. Like uh, sports people get scholarship abroad through sports. Um, I want to add another platform to people growing up. It's a game for rich people, but I think if government can be involved a little bit to create a few academies where players can just see, oh, I have a talent. One day, um, Nigerian players will be on tour, on European and PGA tour, just like South Africans are. And for some players, it won't be necessarily that they had to uh just be good they can be good in school and get a scholarship in america and that's where they raise great golfers so a few kids can then have a totally different life to what they would have had so i hope in the future i can set up a little academy uh, you know in benin city where i'm from in lagos for a start and then the, uh, the kids can come uh i will try we'll try to fund it so they have enough money to go for tournaments competitions and the good golfers who are scratch at 16 17 they can get scholarship through golf in america go through the uh, college and education there and the coaches there in golf are the best then they can represent Nigeria in the Olympics because now golf became an Olympic sport. So I have a lot of plans which are good. It's kind of giving back through golf. And it's a great game to like uh, the NHS today prescribes it for post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's a game that really uh, keeps you away from uh, kids, away from iPads. It's an active lifestyle, but it suits some kids that don't want to do crazy sports like football and, and uh, rugby, for instance. But they, it keeps them active, a bit in touch with nature, uh, camaraderie, you know. So it, it has so much to offer, the game that people will not know. But I'm sure I will be a good ambassador of the game and make it more popular in the countries I came from. Peter, fascinating chat. Loved hearing your backstory. Loved hearing your reminiscing about all your experiences and loved hearing your thoughts about golf and the future. I wish you all the best with all your endeavors. My pleasure, my pleasure. My Nigerian food still? Peter, I still owe Peter Nigerian food for everyone listening. We took a bet at the AFCON. South Africa was eliminated. Nigeria went through further. And I still haven't bought him food, but I promise you we'll do it. <laughs> I'll make you eat the most spicy one. So when you walk out of there, you will remember the day you, you were bold enough to bet on that match. <laughs> I'll back Bafana till I die. Don't worry, Peter, you'll get your Nigerian food sometime this century, I promise you. Now, that's all we have time for this week. Do get in touch at OTW underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter to let us know what you think about the show. And also, please do leave a review and rating. It helps us get noticed. All the best. And as they say in Yoruba, Odabo.